stand and staying cool, unless you like being really hot, like Julie, then hope you're enjoying being really hot right now. So, um, all right, so I want to start today's sermon off. I'm, I'm Joel, by the way, in case you don't see any new faces. Oh, yeah, hi. I'm Joel. Nice to meet you. I'm one of the pastors here, um, here at Resurrection City. Thanks for coming out and visiting. Um, I want to jump, before I like start the sermon off, I actually want to have like a little story uh, to kind of set it up. So um, the, the Resurrection City Church, the, 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 the church you're sitting in right now, would not have been planted if this game had not happened and not turned out the way it did. In case you don't know, this is a guy named Clinton Portis. He's a running back for the University of Miami. Um, and this is in the 2002 Rose Bowl between the University of Miami and the University of Nebraska. Now, Miami won the game, okay? And uh, Resurrection City Church would not have been planted if Miami had not been the winners of this game, okay? Now, let me explain to you what I mean, okay? So, um, Nebraska loses to Miami. It's a big deal. Nebraska's a huge football school. They really care a lot about football there. And someone needs to be the scapegoat for this, right? And so they, they scapegoat the defensive coordinator, and they, they fire him because they want to put all the blame on him for why they didn't win this game. And the defensive coordinator is a guy named Craig Bowl. All right, some of you are like, oh, okay, I think I kind of get where this is going. Craig Bowl uh, gets hired at a little school in Fargo called North Dakota State University, where he becomes the head coach of this team that had been like, in Division II and had been really good there, but kind of mostly in an obscure school when it came to sports nationally. And he turns them into this national powerhouse at the Division I level, where they're like winning national championships and like seven of the last eight national championships. It's a really big deal. So anyway, a little bit after this game happened, kind of right when, when he's first taken over, um, a teenager in a town called Crookston named Joel is trying to decide what he wants to do with his life. And he's like, I'm going to go be, a, I want to think I want to be a football coach. And I was like, I think if I go to NDSU, that would be a good place to go because it's like, I had a bunch of reasons why. I ended up at NDSU, thought it'd be a good fit for me to help launch my, my football coaching career, which I was assure, sure would end up in glory for myself. Um, and so I end up at NDSU, and long story short, I end up deciding not to coach football after a few years of working on the, on the football team and decided to do ministry instead. And that's when I heard about what church planning was. And I only would have been at NDSU if, you know, because Craig Bull was there and he was doing well and I wanted to be at a good school. And I only would have, like, ended up at the church I was at and around the people that I was with in Fargo who kind of influenced me towards uh, wanting to be a church planter. I would not have ended up there otherwise, probably. I guess I can't say for sure. But I don't see how I would have ended up there otherwise, okay? And so in that time, like... I'm there, and I, and I have a friend, and I hear about um, her brother who is at this church down in uh, downtown Minneapolis that apparently is really good at planting churches, and I'm like, oh, that seems like maybe a good place to go, but I would never have heard about this church in downtown Minneapolis called Hope had I not been at NDSU, and I would not have been at NDSU if Miami had not lost this football, or Miami had not won this football game and Nebraska had lost, and so then I come down to do LDI, and I get trained at Hope, and, and I meet Julie, who also wants to church plant, and so we have this idea God puts in our heart to plant this church. And so basically, you can thank the University of Miami for winning this game for why we're all in this room. Who knows where we'd all be right now, right, if this hadn't happened, right? The butterfly effect, right? 
Okay? No, okay. So in all seriousness, I, I'm telling this, it's a go- bit of a goofy story, but like to, to show the way in which like small chance encounters or things that we might not understand uh, how they're going to play out and what the goal is going to be end up paying off in big ways, right? Um, and, and talking about how God works in the background of different things that we don't understand until that has a payoff for his purposes much later is a really big part of the book of Ruth. Right? Because you have all of these, uh, you know, we, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you've kind of heard what's taken place so far. Some really bad stuff has happened uh, to Naomi and Ruth. They're um, both, uh, Naomi, her husband has died, um, and her, and they had two sons, and Ruth is this Moabite. Um, this is another nation that was, didn't necessarily get along very well with Israel. She had married into this family, and then both of the sons had died, and the father had died. So now it's just Ruth and Naomi and a, a, a woman named Orpah who ends up taking off. So it's just Ruth and Naomi, and they're like, you know, they're in trouble, right? Because they're in a world where this, it's not a good place to be um, if you're in their situation, especially if you're a woman. So they're like looking for God to show his, his loving loyalty to them. And that's kind of what the, the theme of this series has been, and that's where we're going today. All right, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the ways in which God shows his, his loving loyalty, his, his said love to them um, as, as we move through our passage today, okay? Specifically, that's kind of what I want to focus on, all right? So that's where we're at, um, and, and that catches you up a little bit with where we've been, all right? So let's, let's jump into the text here. Uh, let's go to Ruth 2.13. This is actually a verse we talked about last week, but I want to go back to it because there's something important here to help us understand uh, what's going on here, all right? So, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, which is, which is Boaz, Ruth said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. All right, so if you remember from last week, Ruth has gone to uh, this field to glean, which is part of kind of the, the social welfare system of ancient Israel. If you, ha- if you were a farmer, you're supposed to kind of leave on the, on the fringes of your field um, grain for people to kind of come and pick, those who are well, well, less well off and, and less, well, less fortunate than you, to pick the grain so they can take it home. It's a form of social welfare. So Ruth is engaging in this, this form of social welfare and, and has ended up in the field of this guy named Boaz who has um, taken, uh, taken a, a notice of her and has kind of acted kindly uh, on, on her behalf. Okay? And so she is saying to him in verse, in verse 10, which, we, which I don't have up here, but she says, I can't believe basically you're taking uh, consideration of me because I'm a Moabite. Right? And Israelites don't like Moabites. They don't get along well like people from Wisconsin and Minnesota, right? They just, it's like oil and water, they don't mix. That's not true. I'm married to a Wisconsin person, so clearly that's not true. But, but like, they don't get along, right? Um, and then now she says in verse 13, I can't believe that you've taken account of me because of my class, okay? That's the word servants there that I've highlighted, okay? Now, that word in the Hebrew is sifat, which means female servant specifically. Now, this is like a female servant of the lowest rank, in the society. Um, she, often they're given as a gift to accompany a bride as part of a marriage between two families. And if the bride is barren, this woman is going to be tasked with bearing a child on behalf of this woman who had gotten married. Okay? She's, so she's kind of there to serve, serve the bride. And by claiming this status, Ruth is viewing herself as occupying the lowest rung on the social ladder. Okay? And she, what she's doing, even the, the translation here is not, not perfect, but what she's actually saying is, not only do I not have the standing of one of your female servants, one of your lowest servants, I actually will never attain that. Okay? I can't believe you're taking account of me. I can't believe that you're doing this for me. 
Okay? This is what she's expressing to Boaz. Okay? So now the next thing that happens, and this is kind of where our specific passage uh, takes off today, is Boaz um, has a meal with her. Okay? At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Right? You guys are like, man, Boaz is being really nice to her. And you're like, maybe he's even into her or something like that. But that's not what's going on here. He's actually putting uh, things in place uh, to protect her, okay? And, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we, as we go forward. But specifically, he's like saying, let's have a meal together. Now, this doesn't seem like a huge deal to us, right? Like, uh, so one of the ways that sometimes we help people that are poor on the street is we might take them out to get a bite to eat, right? We'd, we'd say, let's take them to McDonald's and buy them a burger or something like that. That's a way to help them out. That does not, that's not what ha- is happening here. Because this is a very important thing. Mealtime in the ancient world is super important because who you had a meal with shows this is who, what class I'm a part of. This is whose life I share a part of. And so you can soil yourself by kind of stepping down and having a meal with someone that's not a part of your social class. All right, so Boaz is doing something here that's a pretty big deal. Now, we don't have that same view of meals today, and I was kind of racking my brain for like a good example of like, is there any place that we have a similar thing to this? And I think there's one. I think there's one good, good analogy here, and I'm going to take you all back to high school, right? This is like a common movie trope, right? Every movie about teenagers you watch has some scene in the lunchroom where there's the cool kids table, right? And like, you do not get to sit at the cool kids table unless you are a part of like the social coolness hierarchy of of high school, Um, right? I I know that was a place I was like always like hoping I could get to when I was in high school, Um, right? And so, so, but you just, this is kind of how it works, right? If you, if you sit at the at the cool kids table, you're, like, you're showing like a, like a social map almost of the high school in the lunchroom based on where you sit, right? And it's like maybe overblown in movies a little bit, right? But, but we kind of understand this. This is a little bit about, um, a little bit of how it works in the, in the, in the ancient Near East world, except it doesn't, it's not just in the high school meal room, it's everywhere outside of that. And so Boaz is like really disrupting the social mapping here. Now, just kind of show you what the, what the consequences are of that. Jesus does this all the time. Maybe you're familiar with the Gospels and you, and you have heard um, stories about Jesus taking meals uh, with, with sinners or with those who are like seen on the fringes of society. And there are even um, some scholars who will note that Jesus was killed partly because of who he was eating with. He was so disrupting the social order as part of his shaking up of things. And one of the major things he was doing is eating with all the wrong people that the Pharisees and Sadducees were like, we, this guy's got to go. He's really disrupting everything. Now, like Jesus, Boaz is engaging in a really disruptive meal here. Okay? Now, he eats with her. We see that. But he doesn't just do that. He offers her more grain um, as well. He gives it to her, not the other way around, and she has so much that she has leftovers to take home with her, okay? And he takes the initiative to make sure that she's cared for, not just for this meal, but beyond, okay? Let's keep going, um, and we'll see the way that Boaz does this in verses 15 and 16. As she got to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her, okay? So he's saying, leave some... Like, don't just, like, do the normal thing you do, which is just don't pick up some of the leftover grain on the fringes of the field, right? That's how the gleaning system worked. It wasn't like they were, like, setting it aside. It was just kind of what was left over, 
people could go and grab it. Okay? He's not just saying, just keep doing what you've been doing. He's saying, make sure that some specifically gets left outside of the field for Ruth. All right, so he's making sure that his men take care to specifically leave some for Ruth. And then he goes further and he says, um, don't, don't reprimand her as she grabs it. Now, the, the word reprimand in verse 15 there is the, is the Hebrew word haklim, which means to embarrass or humiliate or shame uh, and disgrace. And in verse 16, again, he says at the very end, don't rebuke her. Now, that word is, is uh, ga'ar, which means to insult. So he's saying, don't just, don't just leave stuff for her. But I want you to like, make sure that you're not even like, teasing her or insulting her or, 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 or catcalling her or anything like that. Do not engage in any of that talk towards her. Okay? Just leave, leave her uh, to, to gather the grain that I'm having you set aside for her. Because you can imagine like, the abuse that someone like Ruth is going to be open to going into this field. Right? Um, Boaz has... You know, all these young men who are working in his field, and this one Moabite woman who has no husband to protect her, no real family to speak of, no one to kind of come and defend her, you can imagine like how vulnerable of a position that she's in. And so Boaz is putting specific protections in place uh, for Ruth so that no one is going to take advantage of her. Right? We, can, we can think of the things that a bunch of, of young men who are just working in the field trying to earn a, a, a living would, would potentially do to someone like that, right? We, we can, we, I don't need to explain to you exactly like what, what could happen to her. And Boaz is like, that is not how it's going to work in my field towards Ruth, okay? So he sets, that, he sets that for her, okay? All right, so let's continue on, verses 17 and 18. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had uh, left over uh, she had eaten enough, okay? Remember, she had had so much left over that she brought it home with her, plus all this extra grain that she gleaned. So it was a hugely successful day. Now, we don't know exactly how much an ephah is, right? Some ancient sources will tell us that it's around 22 liters, and some ancient sources will go as high as say it's 36 liters, okay, worth of, worth of grain, okay? And either we're, you know... It, it's a lot of soda, right? If we're talking in terms of liters, right? Either way, it's a lot, right? It's for sure plenty uh, to last her for a while. If you just think in terms of two liter bottles of Diet Coke, right? 12, uh, 22 liters is a lot. That's, that's a lot. It's going to last, especially two women, quite a long time, okay? So, so, so uh, Naomi is obviously really excited, okay? And she says, um, where did you work? Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The, man of the, of the, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. So Naomi gets, she's already excited, but we're going to find she's going to get even more excited because Ruth has told her uh, whose field she's been working in. She's been working in Boaz's field. Okay? Um, she says, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living uh, and to the dead. Now the, the word kindness there is that word has said that we've kind of been tracing throughout the book uh, of, of uh, Ruth. Right? We've been kind of seeing the way in which this word has said uh, keeps popping up. And that's kind of even the subtitle of the sermon series, like I alluded to at the very beginning, God's loving loyalty. That's kind of how we've been dis- defining it. The, the word has said does not translate cleanly into any of our English words. This kind of wraps up a cluster of concepts. Love, mercy, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. All of these things are wrapped up into that word has said. Okay? And so Naomi detects in this chance encounter, he, 
that, that Ruth ended up, of all the fields that she could have ended up in, she ended up in Boaz's field, uh, Naomi detects a hint of that God has not abandoned his hesed towards them. Now, if you remember, and this Julie set this out in the very first sermon of the series, um, every good story has some conflict to it, right? It's not a, really a story if there's not some conflict and some main characters. And we've, we, we talked about how the conflict of this book isn't just, isn't just about Boaz or Ruth or Naomi, right? The, the, the conflict is not, will Boaz like, learn a lesson about how to handle being well off and giving back to the people around him in need? It's not, will, will Naomi and Ruth be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and become self-made women, right? Like, and kind of conquer their circumstances, right? It's not that those things maybe aren't there to some degree, but the main conflict of the book is that God's character is on the line. And we are asking ourselves, what kind of God do we follow? And we're using Ruth and Naomi and Boaz to, to kind of understand who our God is and what kind of God we follow. And, and we are now finally seeing a hint that, that, that God's character, which has been on the line in the book, is still good. His said has not been abandoned uh, for them. Okay? Now, if we go even back all the way to the first chapter of the book, verses 8 and 9, Naomi has, this is at that crossroads, right, where Naomi has, is looking at her two daughters-in-law. It's, it's just the three of them that are left. All of the men in the family have died. And she's trying to convince uh, Ruth and then Orpah, this other girl, um, to go back to their mother's homes. She says, uh, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, has said, as you have shown, and, and, and the NIV puts kindness there. In the Hebrew, there's actually no word, but just like the same. So, you have shown has said to me, she's saying to Ruth, just like you have shown has said to me, may the Lord show you has said to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So she's saying, listen, you guys have been really great. I really appreciate all you've done, but let me die, let me die alone. Don't, don't, I'm not going to drag you down with me. So I'm hoping that God shows you some kindness and maybe you'll find another husband, maybe another Moabite husband or something, right? And if you remember right, Ruth says, Orpah says, sure, but Ruth says, no, I'm sticking with you and I'm sticking with your God. I believe that God is going to, sh- your God is going to show, has said to me and to you in a different way, okay? And that's paying off here now finally for us. Okay? And, 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 and Naomi's prayer, her, her hope of Hesed being fulfilled to, Naomi, or to Ruth, um, is being shown now, we find, in an even greater way than Naomi could have imagined. We're just getting a hint at it, right? But it's going to, as we trace through the book, we're going to see that, uh, that, that Hesed be shown more and more. Okay? So let's jump to, back to our passage, verse 20 again. Um, uh, the Lord bless him. This, I'm, I'm just re- rereading this. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. She added, that man, that being Boaz, is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now, the word guardian redeemer there is the Hebrew word ga'al. Okay, Bo- Boaz is their, their guardian redeemer. Now, what's that? You guys are... I would imagine none of you have ever heard of this unless you've read through the book of Ruth before because it's a very specific thing uh, centered in ancient Israel and some other surrounding areas as well, but, but specifically we see this in ancient Israel. Now, the Gaal is a relative who is in line to redeem another relative who is in danger, okay? Um, there are like, like uh, this is like hard for us to understand. So, so here's a quote from, a, from the commentary, one of the commentaries we've been using on Ruth. Um, the Israelite provision for the Gaal is based upon 
assumption of corporate solidarity and the sanctity of the family slash clan. To offend a relative is to offend oneself. The custom of redemption was designed to maintain the wholeness and health of family relationships, even after the person has died. Now, there are kind of, we actually look back into, into the, some of the older, like in Deuteronomy or, or, or Leviticus, we find some of the specific roles of the Gaal. There's five of them, really. So the first is to ensure that the land of a relative stays in the family in case someone dies. We want to make sure that land doesn't end up in the hands of somebody else. Okay? Second, buy back any relatives who go into slavery. Okay, to make sure that they maintain their freedom by buying them back out of slavery. Okay, tracking down and executing any uh, murders of relatives, kind of John Wick style, right? Going after, going after people who you know, taking justice in their own hands, which is a little, little crazy. Don't do that, um, in case you're wondering. That's not one of the things in the Old Testament we should keep doing. Um, fourth, receive restitution uh, money on behalf of a deceased victim of a crime. And then finally, fifth, uh, ensure justice is served if there's any lawsuits that are going back in place. So there's this really comprehensive list of things that if you're part of the family of an Israelite, you're supposed to make sure that if that relative of yours is, is in danger or someone else has been put in danger because of the death uh, of someone else in your family, that they are restored, they're redeemed. Okay? And so here's the thing. We, it's not actually one of the, of, when we talk about specifically the Gaal, the, the guardian redeemer uh, earlier in the book, it's actually not one of their jobs to, to marry um, the, 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 the wife of a deceased brother or, or cousin or something. Now, it, it does show up um, in, other parts, in, in other parts of the law. And so what, what uh, Naomi is presumably hoping for is that this guardian redeemer will, in the spirit of the law of the Gaal, kind of take on this other law, a levirate law, and kind of be willing to perhaps marry Ruth. That's actually what she's thinking of. Okay? Now, um, reminder, and we, we find it right here again in verse 21, Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Okay? So this is, this is some high hopes on the, heart, on, the, on the part of Naomi. Right? She is kind of maybe potentially working out this plan in her mind, but it's not like a, it's not like a solid plan. right? It's not like a, like a plan that's like for sure to succeed. If anything, it's kind of like, Maybe a little bit of wishful thinking. That's probably what we're thinking at this point. Okay? Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Uh, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So she wants Ruth to stay safe. So she says, Why don't you, you should keep going back to that field. It's kind of common sense for her to do that. Right? Um, and the, and the passage kind of wraps up. This is how ver- chapter 2 wraps up. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz um, to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay, so this is kind of like a summary of the whole, of the whole passage. And right, we're going to move forward into chapter 3 next week. You kind of see what happens next in the story. But, like, let's just pause to notice here. We've seen God show a hint of his, his kindness, his, his said uh, to Ruth and Naomi. And, and we have this, this hope that they have now that perhaps Boaz will be a part of God's uh, redemption of them. Okay? But then what happens, we find out in this verse, is that they just kind of keep hanging out. Ruth keeps going back to the field. She keeps gleaning until the, the wheat and, and barley harvest is over. Now, that's probably six to, six to seven more weeks that that takes place. Okay? So there's a happy ending but we have no idea if Ruth continues to talk with Boaz. So it's not told to us in the passage that, 
that Boaz like invites her to any more meals. Or he's even out the field. He probably has a lot of different fields that he's, he's going and, and, and keeping track of. And he's, you know, he's the owner of this household. He's got a lot of stuff going on. So he might not have even been back out to that field any more times since then. But, but Ruth kind of keeps going out and, um, and gleaning. But we don't know if she meets Boaz again. We don't know if they have any more continued contact. And it's six to seven more weeks of her just doing that. Okay? So that hope that they had is kind of left hanging. And that's where we're left at, at the end of our passage today is kind of like, well, what's going to happen? Like, is God going to show up again later on in the book? Or is this just the situation going to change for them? But, you know, still going and getting like, you know, the top of the line gleaning that they've been getting, it's not a great way to live, Right. That's the question now. Is that, is that where we're going to stay? And we're going we're gonna, to um, we're gonna leave it there for this week. So we'll, we'll kind of pick it up next week. Julie will we'll pick it up in chapter 3. Um, but I want to kind of pause and kind of just talk about what we've seen so far. And, and as always, bring up some points of application from, from our passage, all right? First of all, I just want to highlight, because so, we'll, this will become important as we keep talking, the ways in which we see God move in the book of Ruth. Okay? And we've seen some of these already. We, we, uh, we saw some happen uh, today, um, and we'll see some happen in the future. But the three main ways that we see God uh, move in the book are, are through chance. If you remember last week, Julie said how like, Ruth ending up in Boaz's field, like the actual Hebrew is like, she, uh, she chanced to chance into Boaz's field. Like, huh, of all the fields in all the world that Ruth could have ended up in, she ended up in Boaz's field. Right? And it kind of, the narrative kind of draws attention to that, right? And you're just like, hmm, that does not seem like coincidence in the way the author's talking about it. The legal system, all right? So, so not only have they ended up in the right field, but they've also ended up in the field of a person who, through, through a legal system, might be the person to help them out, out of their situation. Okay? So the legal system now, perhaps, becomes a part of God's uh, ways that he's going to move uh, to show his, his hesed to Naomi and Ruth. And then finally, and this is the most important one, through people, okay? Boaz is acting in line with the law, right, of the gleaning. That, that's a law that they have, but he goes beyond it. He shows a generosity that goes beyond the law that God has put in place for them to specifically make sure that Ruth is, it has, has plenty of food to glean and that she's protected in that time that she's going to be gleaning in the field, okay? And then we also, we see that in his generosity, and then we also see uh, Ruth's boldness, right? Because, again, Naomi would not be in this situation if Ruth had not said, I'm sticking around with you, and I'm also going to go out and do some gleaning and try to see if I can find us some food. She happened to end up in Boaz's field, okay? So this is a, I think, like, we should pause, and this should be a point of application for us, okay? We should be people that mimic Boaz's generosity, whether we're working through specific laws that are already in place or just, just in our normal everyday lives, and Ruth's boldness, expecting God to work through those things and to show his ascent, whether it's to us or to other people. We should be people who are, are working and moving, being generous and being bold, um, to, to expect God to work through those things. Okay, so when we're, when we're generous people and we're bold people, like Ruth and Boaz, we'll find that God works through us as we follow through on those things and expect God to work through them. Okay? We will find the same thing is true for us that it is for Ruth and Boaz here. We will be blessed or we will find others are being blessed as we actually go out and do something. Now, here's kind of three things to note about this, okay? Because this is like, I don't think anyone is sitting here and like, that's rocket science. Well, that was really a, really a good uh, point of application you just made, Joel, right? But like, I want to like, like, just talk about some of the implications of this, all right? First of all, 
Characters aren't just sitting around waiting for a sign to go do stuff. This is where we get tripped up, I think, a lot of times. Is we're waiting, we're like, and I need to t- have God tell me, right, exactly what to do before I'm going to go do it. And until I get that from him, I'm just going to sit and wait for the sign. We get paralyzed by fear a lot of times, or expectation that we need God to tell us exactly what to do. And we don't feel any confidence going out and doing anything until we feel like God has given us a sign, Right? That's not how Ruth and Boaz are working here. Ruth is not, not, not sitting with Naomi and saying, what field should I go glean in, God? Tell me which is the right field. Give me a sign like, so I make sure I end up in the right field. And Boaz is not sitting around like, you know, oh, God, should, which women should I help out today that are gleaning in my field, right? They're just going and they're, they're in their normal lives, like following God, follow, you know, being bold, being generous. They're finding that God is working through the stuff that they're choosing to do. And they're expecting that to take place. Okay, so just go do something sometimes, right? If you're, if you're like, I want to move, I want to see God move in my life, whatever the situation is, like, don't just sit around and wait for God to tell you what to do. Just go do something and expect him to work through it, right? Now, don't go do something that, like, you know is, like, wrong or evil or bad or something like that, but go do stuff and expect God to work through the stuff that you're doing, okay? Trust him to work through it. Second thing to note, God accomplishes his will through obedient people as well as the rest of creation, right? God is not like working a miracle every time he's working. In fact, in the book of Ruth, everything is really normal. Like there's no like major like supernatural events that take place, stuff that we would say is outside the norm, right? All the stuff that happens in the book of Ruth is actually fairly like normal. It's like maybe a little abnormal in terms of how the people are applying it, but it's all stuff that we could totally see happening, right? And the characters assume that it is God working just through people and through his creation, okay? They assume that, they assume that God wants to work through his people and through his creation, okay? God created the world. He said it was good, right? He created it to function a certain way. It's actually weirder to expect God wouldn't work through his good creation than that he would, like, subvert it and do miracles all the time. And if we're just, like, waiting for God to do miracles whenever he's going to do stuff, actually, it's actually a little bit weird. It actually is weird when he does work through that. I would expect him to work through really normal means, I would think. Okay? And, and also, and I think this is super important, his will is to build a people who are made new. They're transformed. They follow Jesus as their king. They're obedient to him. And as they follow him, they do good works. God works through them. Actually, we, we talked about this in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. If you guys remember, we did the sermon series um, right before Ruth here, um, where we spent some time in Ephesians. And in chapter 2, verses 10, um, we're told that it's by grace that we've been saved, not through our works, right? Our works don't have any bearing on our status before God. They, they mean absolutely nothing to God. But when we are saved through grace, we become God's handiwork. We become his artwork. His poema was the word. It's, a Greek, it's where we get the word poem from. Our, our, we become God's artwork who are created in Christ to do good works, which God has prepared for us beforehand to go do. Right? So our expectation should be that as we go out, as we live uh, lives in light of the gospel, that we are going to be uh, given the opportunity to do good works that God expects us to do so that he can work through us to show his said to ourselves and to other people, right? That's kind of built into the very fabric of the gospel in the book of Ephesians, and we see that taking place here in the book of Ruth. Now, here's the third point, the third thing to note from, from this point of application is that this stuff takes time, right? 
the book of Ruth starts out and, and we're like, we're like, oh, you know, like these people die and, and like we, we see Naomi especially get to a really bitter place, right? A really, she's in a difficult circumstance, right? They're mourning, they're crying. We are there with them as we read the story, understanding like how difficult of a situation this is for them, right? And then they go out and Ruth, you know, goes to the field to glean. And then they wait for another six or seven weeks where nothing really happens beyond that, right? And all of this is God showing his, 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 his said through this stuff that is taking time, taking months, right? This is maybe hard for us, people who have a hard time sitting and waiting for a YouTube video to load for more than 10 seconds, right? It's hard to like, ex- you know, believe sometimes that God is working when he doesn't do it instantly because that's what we expect. We expect everything to be done for us instantly, but God does not work that way. In fact, sometimes his work takes years and years and years, right? Go back to the, 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 the football game I t- talked about at the beginning. Like, assuming God had wanted us to plant this church, like, that means he was planning it for at least back till then, right? right? So God takes his time sometimes, and that's frustrating, but it actually is really good because it causes us to learn to rely on him. It causes us to learn uh, patience. Don't think that if, if you spend some time scared or hurting or feeling abandoned by God, that that means he's not working or that he has completely abandoned you. Okay? That is not true. That is completely not true. We do not know the ways in which God is working, and we should be turning back to God and expecting him to move as Ruth and Naomi do when we, find, when we get into our own situations, just like Ruth and Naomi are in. All right? So that's our first point of application. And our second point of application today um, has to do with, with the question that you might ask sometimes. Like, I, I know that like, it's not uncommon for me to talk with people who are in the middle of tough situations, people that are, you know, maybe not as extreme of circumstances as Ruth and Naomi, but feeling abandoned by God. They're like, where is God's said gone? They don't put it in that way, but they just say like, I don't feel like God is moving in my life. I don't feel like God loves me, especially. That's, a, that's something I, I for sure have talked to people about and have heard from them in the past, right? And that's a really like normal place to feel, I think. It, clearly, Naomi feels this as well. If we go back to chapter one of the book. Um, but for us, we need to trust that God does not abandon his said to us, uh, to different people, including us, right? Now, we have a revelation of God's said, his love for us, that is even far greater than we can, like, understand. Something that Naomi and Ruth do not have at the time that they are, that, that this is taking place. And it's, it's summed up very well here in Romans, Romans 5, 8. This is one of my, probably my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Okay. But God demonstrates his own love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the central and primary revelation of God has said to us, the center of the target, right? If God moves all these ways to show his love for us, right? he's going to do it for Ruth and Naomi in this book through the changing of their circumstances, through the redemption of what's going on to them. But the central and primary way that God shows his love for us is Christ on the cross, Right? This is what we're told in Scripture. If we have a question of whether or not God loves us, we have an easy answer for us. Even while we're in the midst of waiting for God to work and to change our circumstances, right, to show his said to us you know, in the middle of these difficult circumstances into, we should go to the cross. That should be the place that we centrally go to, to know that God loves us, that he has revealed his said to us. Okay? As Christ hangs on the cross, we, we know as he bears his, 
our sin on himself, as he, as he defeats our sin and death, he sets us free that, that he loves us. Because everything flows out of that for us now, right? We, we, are, we are made new, we are transformed, we get to live in the light of that. Um, and we see God's said uh, working in us through that. Now, I know it doesn't always feel like you're like, cool, like that happened a long time ago. I would really like to pay my bills this month though, right? I know that sometimes that like reflecting on or just, just hearing that verse does not uh, make you feel that way. And I, and I get that, right? But, but at, there are two centuries worth of people and, and even beyond that, right? Of people reflecting on the love of Christ and God shown uh, in this climactic act for us. And as people reflect on that, as we meditate on that, as we pray on that, there are two centuries worth of, of, of history of people who have done that, experiencing the love of God in that way and seeing that flow out of their lives. Like giving them hope for the future. Letting them know that, that God has not abandoned his has said for us. Even when we don't know where he's at, even if we don't feel like that's true, we can know it can't be, it can't be true that he has abandoned his has said for us because of the cross. And this is where we go as Christians over and over and over again. Okay? And we'll, now we're going to move into a time of, of, of communion, just like we do here every week, where what we're doing is, is we are specifically following the command of Jesus himself when he tells us to take part in communion, to do this in remembrance of me. Okay? We do this every week to remind ourselves of the center of the target, to, to bathe ourselves in the love of God, in a, in a tangible reminder as we take that bread uh, and we eat it and we drink that cup. We are reminded of the fact that Christ loved us so much. He gave himself up for us to set us free from sin, to make us new people. And he continues to work in our lives. He continues to reveal that has said to us in all sorts of circumstances. So, it, so come on up if this is your first time here today. Just, we'll have a piece of, you can take a piece of bread and take a cup from the frontier and head back to your seat. Um, we just ask that you're, you're a follower of Jesus if you, if you come and take uh, communion with us. Uh, let's, let's bow in prayer, and then we'll enter into a, a time of worship. Father, we thank you that you have not abandoned your said for us. And we can know that you will never abandon your said for us because you have said decisively and climactically on the cross that you love us. You love us enough to give yourself up for us, to make us new, to free us from sin, God. And you continue to, to show us that love in all sorts of ways, whether it's through the people in this room, through other people, through, through random chance, Lord, whatever it is, we thank you for your love for us. And we ask that, you, that I, I ask, Lord, that anyone who is in this room who does not, um, who has felt abandoned by you would, would, would know for certain of your love for them, God. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, whose name is above all names. Amen.